section 21 of antonia this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by alroy antonia by george sand translation by george burnham eaves chapter 5 part 3 you are going to see a beautiful play he informed her before the curtain rose. Perhaps you won't understand it very well, because it's in poetry. I have read it with my godfather Julian, and he explained it all to me as if it was in prose. When you don't understand, mamselle, you must ask me. You chatter like a magpie, said his mother. Don't you suppose Madame knows Corniel better than you do? Oh, perhaps she does, but I don't believe she knows as much as my godfather. Much madame cares about your godfather's knowledge. You fancy that the whole world knows him. Oh, well, if you don't know him, said Juliot to madame d'Estrel, I'll show him to you. He isn't far away, you know. What? said Marcel, much annoyed. Is he here? Do you see him? Yes, I've seen him quite a while. He likes Polyeucte so much. He has seen it more than ten times, I'm sure. See, look in the pit, the third row. His back is turned to us, but I recognize him, Pardi. He has on his black coat, and his chapeau are gants. Madame d'Estrel's heart beat very fast. She looked at the bench which the child indicated, and recognized no one there. Marcel scrutinized it closely. Juliot had made a mistake. The person he had taken for Julien turned his face towards them. It was not he. He was not there. As a matter of fact, he was in one of the upper galleries, just over the box in which Julie was hiding. And he was a hundred leagues from suspecting that by going down to the ground floor he might at least have made an attempt to see her. Indeed, if he had known it, he would have kept his place. He was fully determined not to seek any more furtive opportunities to meet her. As an artist, he was entitled to admission at the Francais. He listened to Polyeucte meditatively, as a pious person listens to the sermon, and he went out before the end, fearing that his mother would sit up for him. As he passed through the vestibule, he was very much astonished to find himself face to face with Uncle Antoine. It was Uncle Antoine's invariable rule to go to bed at eight o'clock, and it was probable that he had never set foot in a theatre. Julian accosted him frankly. That was the better way, even though he were to be ill-received. "'So you are found at last,' he said. "'We were anxious about you.' "'Who are we?' rejoined the uncle in a surly tone. "'Marcel and I,' you are very good. Did you think I had gone to the Indies, pray, that you are so surprised to see me? I confess that I hardly expected to see you here. And I, on the contrary, was sure of meeting you here. And without explaining that reply, which to Julian was absolutely enigmatical, he turned his back on him. Well, well, his mind is really unhinged, thought Julian and he passed on, but not without turning two or three times, to see if the amateur in gardens went in or out, 
and if it were not the case that he had come there unconsciously. But every time that he looked, he saw Monsieur Antoine standing motionless at the foot of the staircase, and looking after him with a mocking expression, in which, however, there was no sign of mental derangement. Uncle Antoine disappeared in the crowd, which invaded the peristyle a few moments later. One of the first groups that he saw consisted of the solicitor's family, with a stranger taller than Madame Marcel, and completely concealed by her black silk headgear. He stole down to the street and took the number of the cab which that group entered, then dispatched in pursuit of that cab the same shrewd and nimble-footed spy who had notified him that Madame d'Estrel had gone out with her attorney, and who had been keeping watch outside the d'Estrel mansion, and inside it at times, for a month past, under disguises of all sorts and on all sorts of pretexts. In those days the play came to an end early enough to allow people to sup. Julie had returned home by ten o'clock, after dropping Madame Marcel on Rue de Petit Augusta. Marcel, who had escorted Julie to her door, was about to go away without entering when she called him back. Her concierge had just told her some very serious news. The old Marquis, her father-in-law, had died at eight o'clock that evening, just when they believed that he was cured. Julia had been sent for so that she might be present at the administration of the sacrament. Her absence, which was very hard to explain by reason of the situation which she herself had explained to Marcel, might have disastrous consequences. Ah, you see how it is, said Marcel sorrowfully in a low tone. They were on the stoop. I told you how it would be. I foresaw some trouble, but there is no time to be wasted in lamentation. The most disturbing thing of all is the old man's too sudden end. Come, madame, you must show yourself at that deathbed. You must take a cab once more. I will escort you to your mother-in-law's house. I shall not appear there, for it would not be proper for you to be seen to arrive under the escort of your solicitor. Tomorrow I will take the field in your interest, and we will find out the contents of the will, if there is a will, which God grant. Julie, sorely disturbed, re-entered the cab. Stay, said Marcel. I can't wait for you at the dowager's door. Her servants would see me, and I have an idea that they report everything to her. I will alight before you drive into the courtyard, and as I should not enjoy the idea of your returning alone in this vehicle, you must order your people to harness at once and send your carriage to the house. You think of everything for me, said Julie. I don't know what would become of me without you. She gave her orders, and they started. Think of this also, said Marcel. You will not find the widow in tears, but at prayer. Do not allow that appearance of sanctity to encourage you as to her frame of mind. Be sure that she has noticed your absence, and that she will arrange to make you undergo an examination in the very midst of her devotions. Do not forget that she hates you, and that in order to justify herself in robbing you all that she possibly can, she will think of nothing but finding you at fault. 
Julie tried to think how she could best explain the innocent escapade of the evening. You can find nothing better than the truth, replied Marcel. Say that you have been at my house. At your house, very good. But what about the play? Going to the play is a horrible sin in my stepmother's eyes, with or without you. Then say that my wife was sick, that you are interested in my wife, because, because she has done you a service at some time, because she is charitable and assists you in charitable work. Throw a slight varnish of piety over it, then what can she say to you? They reached their destination. Marcel ordered the cabman to stop, then he alighted, and Julie entered the courtyard of the Hotel Dormond, on Rue de Grenelle Saint-Germain, in a cab. That mansion belonged to the dowager Dormond, who had married for her second husband, the Marquis d'Estrelle, who had thereafter occupied her first husband's house with her. The dowager was very rich. Her establishment had a grand air of ceremonious inhospitality. Few servants, small outlay, a frigid, death-like splendour. The house consisted of several wings, and the mistress's apartments were located on a rear courtyard, planted with trees and secured from intrusion by a wicket, at which Julie had to ring and wait. But, being certain that she would be admitted, and knowing that Marcel would have to return on foot unless she sent the cab after him at once, she dismissed the cabman when she saw that the wicket was about to be opened. Instead of opening it, the porter entered into a strange parley with her. Monsieur le Marquis could not receive visitors because he was dead. The priests had come to administer the sacrament and to keep watch through the night. Madame la Marquise was closeted with them and the dead man. She gave audience to nobody at such times. Julie insisted to no purpose, on the ground that she was a very near relation. The porter, leaving her outside, purposely or through inadvertence, went to make inquiries and returned to say that no member of the household was allowed access to Madame. As these negotiations had lasted a considerable time, the Comtesse d'Estrelle understood perfectly well that someone had gained access to the Marchioness, and that she refused to see her. Her duty was done, so she insisted no longer. She judged that her carriage, travelling much more rapidly than the cab, must have arrived, so she retraced her steps, crossed the outer courtyard, and passed through the street gate, which was kept by the porter's wife, and was closed behind her instantly with indecent precipitation. A carriage was there, but Julie, notwithstanding her defective sight, saw at once that it was only a cab. Thinking that it was the one that had brought her, and that the driver had misunderstood her orders, or that Marcel had sent it back for her by way of precaution, she called the driver who was sound asleep on his box. It was impossible to wake him except by pulling the skirt of his coat. They who remember what cab drivers were forty years ago can judge what they were forty years earlier than that. This one was so dirty that Julie hesitated to touch him with her gloved hand. She carefully gathered up her ample silk skirt, 
to avoid brushing the dirty wheels. Never before had she been in such an embarrassing plight. She was afraid, too, to be alone in the street near midnight. The occasional passers-by stopped to stare at her, and she trembled lest, from good nature or malice, they should attempt to interfere in her affairs. The driver woke at last and answered that he did not know her, that he had brought two priests of the parish to attend the dying man, and that his orders were to wait for them. He would not stir at any price. Julie glanced anxiously about her. Her carriage did not appear. She raised the heavy knocker on the gate, intending to return to the courtyard of the hotel. The gate did not open, whether because special orders had been given with respect to her, or because the general orders were inflexible. Extreme terror took possession of her. The idea of returning alone, on foot, could not be entertained nor was it possible to remain standing in front of that gate. There was not a single shop on the street, and she must wait for her carriage somewhere, no matter where, provided it was not in the street. The outbuildings of the Hotel du Monde were some distance away at the right and left. In one direction was an abbey, in the other the convent of the visitation where she might seek shelter. But it was at least ten minutes' walk, and there again she would have to parley before obtaining admission. She noticed on the opposite side of the street a high gate at the end of a passage between the Hotel de Puiseux and the Hotel d'Estrée. She thought that if she gave a louis to the gatekeeper, he would allow her to wait in his lodge. She crossed the street, but when she attempted to ring, she found that there was neither keeper nor bell. It was simply a servant's gate for both houses. Julie was rapidly losing heart, when she suddenly saw close beside her, as if he had risen from the ground, a man who terrified her so that she almost fainted. But he instantly named himself, and she uttered a joyful exclamation. It was Julia, she explained her misadventure in a few somewhat incoherent words. Julia understood, because he was already half-informed, and he was not there by chance. "'It is useless for you to wait here for your carriage,' he said. "'It probably will not arrive for some time.' "'How do you know?' "'I was at the Comédie Francaise this evening. "'Did you see me there?' "'Were you there, madame? I did not know it. In that case, in that case, I can understand my meeting with Monsieur Antoine Terry and his words. He must have known that you were to be there. He was on the watch. He made an ironical remark which I did not understand, but which gave me something to think about. As I returned to the pavilion, I stopped, being somewhat uneasy in front of your hotel. The servants were in great commotion. It seems that your coachman could not be found. I accosted the concierge who knows my face, and seeing that he was greatly disturbed, I asked him if any accident had happened to you. He told me of the Marquis d'Estrelle's death, and that you had driven here with my cousin Marcel. Your coachman appeared at last, dead drunk, 
and unable to understand any of the orders you had left for him. The concierge left me, saying that when Bastian was once on his box, he would go all right. That did not seem very reassuring to me. I am not so phlegmatic as your concierge, and I came here as fast as I could. I hope to find Marcel still here, and to tell him not to trust you unattended to the care of a drunken coachman. But I arrived a few moments too late. You are alone, and you have been frightened. It's all over, said Julie, and I'm calm again. Take me home on foot. You are my providence. On foot it is too far, replied Julia, and you are not properly shod for walking. This cab here will take us, willingly or by force. I give you my word, and I will get up behind and accompany you. Julien returned with Madame d'Estrelle to the cab. He put her in and ordered the driver to start. The driver refused. Julien jumped up beside him and seized the reins, swearing that he would throw him into the gutter if he resisted. The young man's manly bearing and determined air awed the cab driver, who submitted, but he had not driven a hundred yards when he stopped, yelling, Thief! and Murderer! A party of men had just come out of a house, and the poor devil hoped to find some aid against the violence he was undergoing. As luck would have it, these men were young dandies fresh from a sumptuous supper, and a little the worse for wine. The adventure presented itself at that moment of excitement, when one gladly constitutes himself a redresser of wrongs, especially when the odds are four to one in his favour. They abruptly stopped the horses, and one of them opened the door, for the cabman was yelling at the top of his voice, Help! There's a villain carrying off a nun! Let us see if she is worth the trouble, replied the party with one voice. End of section 21